Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist with the First Steps Program in Louisville, Kentucky. How are you, Laura? I'm good. How are you? Well, we're having a little winter wonderland here today, aren't we? (laughs) We are. It's beautiful with the snow. I'm hoping we get a snow day tomorrow. We'll see. Yeah, nice. My daughter's driving home from college from IU, so and she keeps telling me the roads are bad. I'm like, so if I seem oh, kind of no. hyper and nervous, it's because the roads are bad. Oh um, no! Well, I'm just going to take a moment and pray for her really quick that God will protect her and she will be fine. I am a little anxious because my daughter's in a Christmas program at 6, hence the reason why we're having the show early today at 4.30, and I forgot to put it on the website. I went over there to do it and got distracted. Imagine that. So if you are (laughs) – we probably don't have that many people listening right now because they don't even know what's on unless they kind of get an automatic message from Blog Talk Radio. So I have a feeling some people might be tuning in at 6 and thinking that we're live, and we – are doing it now, an hour and a half early, so that's okay. They'll still get to listen. They'll just listen uh, from the website, which is actually how I think most people listen anyway, I do at their too. convenience. Although it was fun to get a, a live caller last week, so if you're listening to this recorded, we, normally it's a 6 o'clock caller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, write it down, call us next week, and I hope that we have our shows all through Christmas, except we probably are not going to have one the day after Christmas, because even Kate and I need a break from talking about this every now and then. Otherwise, I think, uh, well, I guess that'll just be next Sunday would be our last show for 2010 then. But we will be going strong in 2011 and still at this time, 6 p.m. on Sundays, because I, I do think it works pretty well on the schedule. Okay, I have a couple of things to talk about before we get started on our regular agenda today. First of all, uh, for our Louisville friends, my conference is on, for sure, on Friday, January 21st. I've already had some folks register for that, so I'm so excited about it. And it's particularly good for Kentucky First Steps providers. And First Steps is our early intervention program in our state because this one conference meets all the continuing education requirements you have for your First Steps contract renewal, the next one that will be coming up. And usually it's hard to get those typically developing hours, that three hours of typical development. But the morning is going to be about that, and then we'll still have tons of great treatment stuff to talk about in the afternoon session. So I'm so excited I was able to get that scheduled. And for our Kentucky friends, even not just in Louisville, throughout the state, if you want to drive to Louisville, please, by all means, do. And you can get uh, registration information about that on my website at teachmetotalk.com. The second thing I'm supposed to talk about is I've gotten some emails from folks asking me, when are you going to come to my state? When is your 2011 conference schedule going to be out? I had a nice letter from someone named Catherine in Massachusetts. Oh, gosh, and two or three other people, but I don't, I'm not even going to try to remember their names. I just remember Catherine because I just looked at it. And if you would like for me to come to your state, here's what I need. I always need a good way to contact providers individually, not just word of mouth, even though that's great, not just a little email put on some kind of board that people may or may not visit. I need direct lists from some states have that on the web. 
like uh, Indiana has a nice service, uh, service provider matrix, Louisiana does, Missouri does, you know, hence all the places that I've been. <laughs> <laughs> and some other people are emailing me links or their state list. So if you would like to have a birth to three uh, treatment-driven conference in your state and you've been thinking about that and wondering if I'm going to be close to you, please help me find a way to do that. And my most important criteria is to have a way uh, addresses and email addresses, a way that I can directly contact early intervention providers. So just wanted to put that in there. And then there was one more thing I was supposed to talk about. Hmm. Oh, Louisiana. I've gotten a couple of emails from people this week saying, are you going to go back to central Louisiana like you were going to? We are trying really hard to work that date out, so I wanted to let you guys know that that's probably going to be the last week in February, and I will be um, firming up those hotel arrangements or conference uh location arrangements this week and hopefully next week or the next get that date um, up on the website so those are the three things I was supposed to mention before we start and I have taken care of that so now our executive producer will be happy with me and I will be able to ride to, with him to church with him <laughs> saying you did it thank you you did all your thing <laughs> you did what you're supposed to do all right let's move on and let's talk about some more of those great questions that I got when I was in Louisiana the week before last because those folks were so much fun and I got some of the best questions that I've ever, ever had in conferences. And these were things that we've talked about some, but I just thought that they were worth mentioning. I'm not sure we've ever talked about this, though, Kate, about uh, therapy frequency. I had a couple of people ask me what I thought, how how much therapy is just right for baby's birth to three and how much is therapy overload and here's the therapy overload question it was a girl who said that she had a little guy that the mom really wanted services three times a week and she felt like that was a little much and she asked me what did I think about that and I said I think that's a little much <laughs> and I, because even kids that I've had two times a week and again I know I'm not going to share all the particulars about um, that one situation that she shared because I really um, don't want to violate confidentiality and there's some things that are very, very particular to that little boy's case, but he does have a suspected diagnosis and they did recommend a big increase in his frequency of therapy, but she just said she kind of runs into what I ran into or would run into if I were seeing a kid that, that often. It's things become kind of boring, don't you think, Kay? Can you imagine trying to see a kid at two for three times a week? Well, I, I'm assuming, or I, yeah, I guess I'm assuming, you mean one therapist three times a week, speech three times one a week. One therapist, or? speech three times a week, OT three times a week, and I think he also uh, was in preschool. How, wait, how much was had OT? Three times a week. Ooh. And I think uh. that they also had some other programming going on for him. And she just feels like he's on overload. And she said the most interesting thing happened. He recently had a break in therapy. He was gone for about 10 days. And she said that when he came back, he was had dramatically changed. He made lots of progress in that time off. And it was the session was fun, and he was more participatory, and she just felt like um, that the 
that break, that one 10-day break or so, had really, really given him a bump up. And she asked me, you know, why do you think that is? And I said, you know, I don't know this, like, based on research or anything. But from my own experience, it's worked like that little therapy holiday or therapy vacation we've talked about from time to time. And really, when children have had tons of therapy, sometimes you miss a couple of weeks for whatever reason, and then you see them, and it's like they pull themselves together. You hear new words. They're doing skills that maybe, and or, or you know, doing things that they haven't done that you've worked and worked on. And it's like that little break just gave them enough time to pull it back together, so that they can move forward. And again, that's not based on any particular expert that's recommended that. I've just known that that's happened from time to time. And when I've gotten stuck with kids, and when I felt like we're all just banging our heads against the wall, you know, the kid, the parents, me, everything. Sometimes I will purposefully say, let's take a couple of weeks off and see what happens. And that's not to say that we don't want to have continuous therapy services and that it's not important and that we don't need to address things consistently. But every once in a while, you can just kind of feel like a kid needs a break. And with that little guy, she just feels like the three times a week had just been a lot. And he was really not um, having very much fun in therapy. And from how, what she said to me, she wasn't either. <laughs> <laughs> and that little break gave them all the vacation that they needed, and he was able to do it. So she asked me about that. And I told her, usually with two-year-olds, I just see them once a week. And there's some children that, you know, because we've had lots of team members through our early intervention program or... Um, for whatever reason, we've just done twice a month, and really, I like weekly better, but the truth is, sometimes those twice a month kids do just as well as those weekly kids. I don't know if you want to address that, Kate, with a particular, so I mean, what do you think about three times a week? Do you think that sounds like a lot? I do. I mean, I can see why mom might advocate for that, particularly if, right. the, and I know nothing of this specific case, but with certain diagnoses, certainly more therapy is indicated or recommended. Right. On the other hand, like you said, I don't I don't even really love, I've had a few kids that I've seen twice a week, and I think right. it's kind of hard to keep that fresh and novel and fun um, on my end, and, and it seems, you know, and I think that's because I, I feel like a lot of kids kind of get, um, you know, they get bored. They get, it's too familiar to them, and it's too predictable. Try as we may to take fun toys and be that much more fun, you know, when it's so repetitive, it's just hard to keep it fun. So three times a week, mm, yeah, I'd say that (laughs) probably. you know, I, I don't think I would commit to it, and the times that I've done too, I've always done that kind of on um, with the condition that if I feel like we're not making the progress that um, I feel like we should be making or, you know, behavior becomes a problem because the child's no longer as interested as he was or whatever, I always kind of say, we'll do this for as long as it seems to be beneficial. And when we get to the point where he's bored or he's no longer as um, participatory as he is now, then I'm going to back off. And I have, in fact, backed off before because we reached that point, you know. And I do think there's kind of this delicate balance where it's helping, it's helping, it's helping. Eh, Is it helping now? You know, (laughs) Where yeah. we're kind of all of a sudden, what what had been a really good productive session, 
there's more behavior on the child, negative behavior on the child's part. There's just not as much enthusiasm on either one of our parts. Just no, um, you know, not as obvious um, progress being made. So at that point, I think, and it's not necessarily a dollars and cents thing. It's just if if you're not moving forward, then um, probably doesn't warrant an additional session or two a week. But boy, Louisiana must be pretty generous if there's if their early intervention is put, program is paying for that. I don't think that's the case. Okay. I don't think that's the case. Okay. I think it was a different type scenario, and she asked me not to share okay. specifics, um, okay. and so I'm not. But she really said that she just felt like um, she was seeing him too often, and when they had that little vacation, it was fun. And one thing I suggested to her is she might really try to think about it more like we plan if we were doing preschool sessions or playgroup sessions and in that you have a little routine and that you try to kind of maybe make it theme-based so that you can bring in different activities and different, um, you know, so that you're always looking for something new. And she said, yes, I've thought about that, but that's been really hard for me to do because, you know, as therapists we kind of get on automatic pilot <laughs> and do what feels normal. And sometimes when you do have a kid that requires um Lots of additional planning that's hard to squeeze into your work day. So I talked to her about that and gave her some additional ideas about how she could maybe change the session a little bit and, um, you know, sort of think about it in a, in a different way. And she um, got the social games book, and I think she was going to really look at that and do a lot more social kinds of things with him because she realized after the presentation that maybe they were working on expressive language a little bit too much and she needed to back up and work on some receptive things and work on social games. And she said she liked the auditory processing games that I talk about in the conference and how to make it more, you know, not just sitting down, you know, using a lot of movement. So she got some additional ideas to try to make it more fun, which I think is great. If that's what really good therapists walk away from my conference with are just new ideas to kind of jumpstart things, that's awesome. You may not come in and have to change your whole entire practice after listening to someone or going to another conference, but just to get some new ideas so that you're not doing the same darn thing and that your kids are totally uh, sick of it, um, I do think that she was able to kind of walk away with some different um, things to try with him. But I, I do think three times a week is a little excessive. On the same for speech, for you know, right. three times a week of one service and three times a week of OT, and she felt like the OT had a little bit better time. And I said, yeah, because that's probably because she's he's moving. He's not expected just to kind of sit there Uh that whole time. That's not really developmentally appropriate for any two-year-old and certainly not one with delays. So she was going to revisit some of that as well. Um, I had one other speech pathologist who who is in an interesting situation. She works in an outpatient clinic, and she just does uh, early intervention part of the time. She said her caseload ranges from babies who were one to, you know, 100-year-olds. You know, she works with adults as well. She's in a small town, and I think she's a one-man show, and so whatever she gets at the clinic, that's what she gets. But she said she had a mom who a little girl has Down syndrome, and her special instructor, which is like the uh, early intervention, the developmental interventionist like we have in Kentucky, recommended that the little girl go ahead and start uh, weekly speech at 15 months. And she said, do you do that? And I said, well, it just depends on the kid and their needs and what we're working on. However, 
I generally don't see children until they're closer to two weekly. Usually it's, um, you know, a couple of times a month or whatever frequency we've determined. And she said she had seen this little girl like once uh, once every three months from birth to 12 months just to be sure that mom was on board with doing what she needed to do at home. And, again, this is a baby with Down syndrome, and she said she did not have lots of feeding issues, so that wasn't something that she needed to address every week. This is strictly a communication kit, and she said she just felt like speech at 15 months was overkill, and I tend to agree with that. I probably (laughs) at 15 months would you know, agree monthly or twice a month at the most. And so I do think that there's kind of a balance. Of course, if you have a mom who really wants you there weekly, you know, you might say, what other things can we work on? What would you like to do? You know, more doesn't necessarily mean better. And I think sometimes moms, especially like with Down syndrome, they might think, her speech and language has the potential to be normal if we see her weekly. And I'm certainly not saying that you might not see more progress to have more frequent therapy sessions, say, a couple of times a month versus once every three months. But at the same time, sometimes you just can't necessarily make everything all better just with more frequent therapy visits. So it's something that I don't think we've talked about that a lot on here before other than suggesting that, you know, when, when children have gotten in a real kind of negative pattern or there doesn't seem to be much progress or you all feel frustrated that taking a little therapy break for a couple of weeks. But I don't remember really talking about frequency. And as far as I know, there aren't any strong guidelines for how often a 15-month-old with Down syndrome should be seen or how often a child with autism, you know, really has to have speech visits before two or at two. So, um, we're just going by our personal experience here and kind of what we've seen work. And it's got to be dictated by what your program lets you do. You know, with on our big teams in Kentucky, we have to split it up. We can't go beyond a certain um, amount of hours of therapy without special approval. So that kind of dictates services, too, how much the program will allow and will pay for. Right. I always... Um once a month to me is, I, it depends on the situation. Twice a month is good for one of those I feel like they're really too young to see weekly. But right. I, I think also, um, like you said, if she were going to see the child weekly, then what other things can they work on? It kind of depends on what's going on with the family, what's going on with the mom, right. how much really support they need in all areas of development. And a good speech therapist right. would certainly be comfortable talking about Oh, simple things like um, what's appropriate to respond to, you know, when they cry. What sorts right. of toys should this child have at this time? What uh, fe- feeding, even if it's not feeding per se, like a feeding issue, but what kinds of foods might you try with this child? Or when do you, you know, there's them up. yeah, right, lots yeah. and lots and lots of daily things that might be unique to a child with Down syndrome or maybe not even so unique, but a mom who's not maybe her first baby and really hasn't had a lot of experience and has a lot of additional concerns because her child has Down syndrome, whatever. There are lots of reasons that weekly would be legitimate, but um, to just work on communication weekly does seem like that's pretty early for 15 months. I wouldn't even really want to see a child that didn't have a diagnosis weekly for just communication at that point. I mean, at that age. Yeah, and I think, 
Well, and especially with early intervention, our focus really is helping moms and dads learn what they can do too and what they can work on and what they can practice. And so seeing the child often enough so that you can continually be making new suggestions to mom and dad, but just thinking, um, you know, that one hour twice a month would be enough to target communication is not really what we're saying. We're just saying... Um, you know, that's enough to redo her plan, make some new suggestions to mom, give mom some new ideas and some things. And mom really should be following through with those kinds of things every single day. So it's not like she just works on speech twice a month <laughs> right? for an hour. And no matter what kind of therapy you're doing, you know, our whole focus as early interventionists is really to help parents know what they can do so that they can facilitate development in any area. So I think that that would be plenty of time. But, again, it does depend on the kid and the individual circumstance and what all they're working on and all those different factors. So, you know, I'm glad we don't have guidelines that are specified because you can't ever really adequately address everybody's issue when it is uh, laid out like that. There has to be some wiggle room for particular um, cases and room for clinical judgment when a when a therapist might think, oh, gosh, this kid really does warrant more services because of X, Y, and Z. Um, so that's certainly something that we're not not aware of. So just right. wanted to kind of talk the, about that. Uh, here, you know, in Kentucky, we have the, what do they call it, primary provider model or something like yeah. that where there's one individual uh-huh. who – in theory, anyway, sees the child more um, regularly or and more often. But, you know, if it were a case where the speech therapist happened to be the primary provider and she were seeing the child weekly, but they might talk about sensory issues or they might talk about, you know, any number of, of things that it aren't yeah. necessarily related to speech or communication specifically, but right. a good speech therapist is going to know those things. So in that case, you know, Weekly, three times a month, something like that would probably be warranted. But if it's a uh, situation where there's a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, and a physical therapist, weekly for speech is pretty heavy in, in my At opinion. At 15 months. But then mm-hmm. get closer to two, and I think weekly is a good frequency mm-hmm. after that. But bottom line, it does depend on the kid and what's going on and all those kinds of things. So, okay, I think we've beat that horse long enough. We're going to move on. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to talk about that, though, but sometimes I do think a therapy holiday is warranted with those kids where you're really all frustrated and sometimes you're off for Christmas break or off for a couple weeks in the summer. I've got a little boy that I show uh, footage of from the conferences, and I had missed him one week because I was on vacation. The next week he was on vacation, and I think somebody was sick after that, so I didn't see him for three weeks. And then, then the session that I went back and filmed him, all of a sudden he had vowels. And we had worked on vowels. He had just had an uh before. And we had really worked hard on getting some additional vowels in his repertoire. And lo and behold, that three-week break, it all came together. And the, when he said, Candy, you know, you can see my face in the video. I am shocked <laughs> and was so excited. But sometimes those little holidays again, do tend to kind of help pull things together. So every once in a while, that is warranted with a kid that you've um, kind of reached a, reached a stalemate with. Right. You know, I really thought in um, 
may be uh, kind of ignorant, but I thought the therapy holiday holiday thing was a Rosetti thing. I don't know why I got that in my head, but somehow. therapy holiday. I remember it from um, an apraxia conference. Okay. I don't remember it being Dr. Rossetti, but you well, know, you're, you're you know so Rossetti way better than I do. I don't know. I I've certainly seen it. I'll tell you that it is interesting. Yeah. Sometimes a week or two or three off is really the yeah. best thing, and I always think, oh, I mean, I'm always thrilled to see the progress, but then I think, great, didn't see him for two weeks, and he made mm, months of progress. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. But I don't think that's I don't think that's it. I think that it's that the kid kind of neurologically has time then to do kind of come together and pull together new things. And they're, I don't know, maybe it works like we do with vacations. You come back and you're rested and you're refreshed and, uh, you know, things have gotten better. <laughs> so maybe it's the same way with that. I don't know. Maybe I should look up more about that before we try to talk about it on the show anymore. I but doubt I just thought those were interesting questions. Too, too concrete about it, I'm guessing, but it'd be a hard thing to oh, research. Oh, not concrete at all. Yeah, and it would be too hard to research. I'm just not sure we're not going to find it, really. Um, but I do think, you know, I have seen it just from personal experience, seeing it happen more than once, and it does give everybody kind of a little bit of breathing room. Um, and it helps, too, when you've got a mom that's, uh, you know, needs some needs some time off. So, I, th- I think it's an idea. Just another trick to have in your bag. Not on every kid, not all the time, just in those special situations. So, anyway, all right, we need to move on. We've talked about that way too long. Okay. Okay. Let's do this next question. Okay, this was from a con- the conference in New Orleans, and this was from a lady who had a grandchild, and she said, I'm asking this question about my grandchild, not about a child that's on my caseload. And she said, She's had this situation where, and we didn't talk about this last week, did we? The self-soothing. No, we didn't get this far, did we? Okay. No. She we were said stuck on last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got stuck on that this last Friday in St. Louis too, but I'm not even going there again. <laughs> Listen to the show from last week if you want to know what we're talking about. Okay, but this is what she said. She said she asked, "Had I seen this?" And she asked it in the in the part of the presentation when we're talking about pragmatics. And again, that means how a child uses the words that he has. And I show a video of this little boy learning how to call his sister. And we were talking about how some children may even have vocabularies of 25 or 30 words, and they still don't say mama or dada, and they don't use it functionally like to initiate calling them when they need some help or maybe, you know, they wake up from their naps and are calling out for, you know, mama, mama, mama. I can still hear all three of my children as babies doing that because that's what they did when they woke up. And she said what's happened with her her grandchild is that her her um, parents have really wanted her to learn how to self-soothe, and that, that was very important to them. And so they put the, her down, the grandchild down, from the time she was born on her own, you know, didn't rock her, didn't anything. You know, it was just putting her in her bed, you know, patting her, saying night-night, you know, mommy loves you, whatever, and then leaving the room and really letting her self-soothe. And I asked her if that always meant cried out, and she said, no, not always. But the problem is she's really content now to be by herself for long periods of time, and she doesn't initiate very much of anything. And she certainly is not 
calling her mom from the crib. She's still pretty young. I can't remember how old she said she was, and I'm not even going to take a stab at it because for fear that I'm saying the wrong age. But she said she's still pretty young, and she's not <sighs> delayed per se. She just feels like that should have already started to happen, and she's afraid because she said she feels like the self-soothing that they've done a little too good of job of that. And we have talked about that a lot, Kate, in a different context. We always say that typically developing children are really demanding. You can hardly go to the bathroom by yourself or cook or shower or anything without that typically developing toddler wanting to be right there with you and calling you from throughout the home whenever they need any kind of help or need something and just about how persistently they communicate. And again, her point was she thinks that the attempt to make her a good self-soother has made her a non-initiator. And so she asked me what I thought about that. So what do you think about that? Let's put you on the spot. <laughs> well, I'm sticking with our premise that typically developing kids, toddlers, are demanding children. And that's how I feel. I, I you know, that's it's um, the nature of the beast, if you will. That's just the way they learn early. And if if they have a responsive mother or parent, I think they learn that squawking or squealing or screaming or crying or whimpering or smiling or anything they do initiates a response. And so they learn to, um, on some level, communicate that their their wants and needs very, very early. So I guess I wouldn't be a big advocate of <laughs> all that self-soothing <laughs> stuff. I kind of think, mm, I think that babies are supposed to learn early that, that caregivers are responsive. And, um, yeah, so do I. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, and I, I guess I could it's hard. kind of understand the theory a little bit, but I just think that that is not the um, the way that the relationship is supposed to go. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what the theory, I guess we create needy um, needy children. Communicators? Yeah, needy children if we're too responsive. And I think, oh, I'm going with newborns can't be spoiled and Uh, that we need to pick them up and hug them and teach them that you do something to get my attention and I am right here because I think that's the foundation for communication and that when we take that away from them, then we may be setting up problems. And, again, I haven't seen this baby, and this grandmother seemed concerned enough to ask a question in a conference. Mm-hmm. But, um, again, I don't feel that she thought that there were any huge issues other than she could see potentially, oh, my goodness, we might be setting up um issues that we wouldn't have had we done some things differently. You know, this reminds me of uh, what we see a lot of times with children who are adopted or who are in foster care. I'm seeing a little girl right now, and she didn't. Uh, she and her three or two siblings are in foster care, and she did not make a peep at all for the first several weeks that her foster mom and dad had her. And they, it, it sounded like this issue. They would, she would just. The foster mother told me she would just find her, and 
you know, she wouldn't have even realized that she had been awake or that she was, you know, covered in poop or anything because this little girl did not ever cry or ever really initiate anything. And she looked really flat and really non-responsive a lot of the time. Now, now she is looking great. She's saying a lot of words. She's a full-time imitator now. And she turned two back in the fall, so we're so excited to hear that. And she is her little personality is just blossoming, and she just looks darling. I've just recently uh, started to video her to use in some of the conferences, but you know it reminds me a lot of that when when this grandmother asked that question with the children who were really kind of trained that well nobody's going to come, so I might as well not even try, and that makes me feel sad. Yeah, for for those little ones, so. And one of the things, Laura, we've said repeatedly over the months is that easy babies, um, you know, aren't necessarily a good thing, quote-unquote. And, and by that, at least my assumption is we met, we've met, because we've seen so many kids on our caseload that mothers report, and this is more like when they're two, oh, he was such an easy baby. And normally a lot of times, for me anyway, that has meant, I mean, I wouldn't say this to a mother, but what I would think was that's because he's socially not very not very well connected, and he didn't really right. make many demands on you. He didn't really right. care to be held. He didn't really care if you were watching him. He didn't want you to see what he was doing. He's kind of a disconnected little guy who doesn't really have a very strong social connection. Um, and I guess that would be my concern about that self-soothing uh Right, right. You know, let's encourage them to be self-soothers. We don't want to make her needy. Um, I would be concerned that I would have a fairly disconnected kid at the end of that. and I, don't I would be too. And mm-hmm. you know what? The big danger to me is, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but if I don't say this, I'm okay. going to forget about it. For typically, to, for a kid who really is wired neurologically to kind of be predisposed to be smart, for lack of a better word, that might be okay. But for a child with kind of a neurological, and again, we say wiring, meaning that's just how they're made, who who maybe is kind of predisposed to some developmental delays and some developmental challenges, I can, you know, that would really be a big deal because you're making it even that much more likely, you know, to have the speech language delay or like what you're talking about, the social disconnectedness. You know, we know that autism has a genetic link, and so if a kid has that predisposition there, we're going to make that worse. Self-soothing for a child who, again, is put together pretty well neurologically might not be that big of a deal, but we don't know which kids are predisposed to these kinds of developmental issues. (laughs) Right. We don't do. We can't do an MRI at birth and say, "Oh boy, you better work with this one, or he is just not going to be successful academically at all." Or you better start with this social stuff like the first minute you hold him in the hospital, because otherwise, he's predisposed for autism. Right. And we don't know that, so I think it's even more dangerous. Um, you know, uh, probably okay for children, again, who we're going to be typically developing anyway, but we don't know that. We don't know that with our when we have our newborn babies, kind of how they're going to turn out. And I certainly don't mean to imply that for kids who I've seen in the past who were somewhat disconnected, and I just mean aloof, happy to be by right. himself, the ones who will go in their right. playpen and play for two hours. I mean, my kids, mm, 
In their toddler years, they logged a total of about 10 minutes in a playpen because the minute I put them in there, they were sounding the alarm. You know, no way were they going to stay in a playpen. And so I always Trying marveled to climb at out. The, yeah. yeah, I always marveled at those kids who'd sit in that playpen and play with their few little toys for an hour. I mean, like, what? Even if they didn't climb, even before they could climb out, they were squealing and crying and throwing the toys over the side. They were doing everything they could tell do to tell me, no way am I staying in this playpen. But I guess I had that type of child. Imagine that. But, you know, I don't mean that those kids, that that's a, a reaction to parent disconnected parenting that I right. just think you're that not drawing that conclusion absolutely right. not I don't want to say that oh Kate said Kate said on her podcast um for if you know anybody happened to be listening whose child was kind of disconnected um I just think that demanding children um socially connected kids tend to be demanding children and those who aren't particularly well socially connected, even with their parents, aren't nearly as demanding. They're much happier to be off by themselves. And I think it's kind of a two-way street where parents do ultimately probably, and I'm not saying this anything against the parent, but they're kind of conditioned to pay a little less attention to their child as well because their kids don't demand it. I mean, there were plenty of times I... I would have willingly ignored my children had they allowed it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but because Absolutely. they did demand it, you know, I stepped up and did what I had to do. But if I had had an easier child, less demanding child, a more um, independent child early on, it would have been easy to think he's happy over there. You know, and that's and right. that isn't necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. But yeah, the self-soothing. Hmm. I, I, I would be a little I think concerned. we're going to feel about that like we feel about back to sleep, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, when they started the whole back to sleep push, and then a couple years later, then we had all these kids who couldn't crawl and who were just having all kinds of sensory issues. You, then when, you, when their moms did decide at about eight months, oh, gosh, I want him to crawl. I'm going to put him down on the on the floor on his tummy. They freaked out because yeah. it had been a kid that had been on his back or on his side. And then we had to, you know, all the little helmet kids who had to wear the little helmets because they were they stayed um in Flat the on their they stayed on their backs yeah they or in the swing on their back you know everywhere they put they were Everywhere their moms put them besides on their bellies. And, again, this is not to say that every kid who wears a helmet is because mom didn't put him on his tummy. I'm not drawing that conclusion. I'm just saying we saw lots and lots of children who had these horrible reactions to being put on their stomachs, and they were really not very coordinated toddlers and, again, had lots of difficulty learning how to crawl and lots of difficulty obtaining those motor milestones. And many, many of our PT friends have said it's because they didn't do tummy time. Um, And, again, I wonder if we're going to, if we'll see some of this, you know, lots of non-initiating children and lots of, you know, you just never know because the truth is we don't know when a child is born. We really do not know who is wired to have problems and who's not or who's going to have, you know, we, we just don't know. And so we have to create environments that are most likely to result in typical development and not having, uh, not responding to children's initial communicative overtures with yelling from the crib by going in there teaches them on some level 
well, it doesn't matter what I do because she's not going to respond anyway. And I hate that. I hate that for those babies, especially for the babies that would have social skill issues and that would have language and interaction problems anyway, even had they had the most responsive parents. It's just not going to make it any easier for those kids, and I guess that's our bottom line. You know, we we think that we should be doing whatever we can to facilitate not only normal development, great development. <laughs> and one of those is tre- teaching children how to communicate and that you do something and you get something. Um, so, again, that would I understand why that grandmother's concerned. And, again, I'm not in this phase in my life. My children That's because she's old are, school and she thinks like we do. What do you mean you don't yeah. go in there? <laughs> and she's older than us. I would say that she was in her 50s. You know, but your baby's children. Crying. What, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I know, and I understand that parenting issues change. You know, when Jonathan was, you know, he's 21 now, and when we put him in a car seat from the very, you know, moment we took him home from the hospital and my husband's grandmother said, why aren't you holding that baby? That's so mean that you would strap him back there like he's, you know, your your freight, your hauling freight. That's not how we do it. You know, and I laugh about that. I laughed about it then, and I really laugh about it now. And But I, I just think communication is a different kind of issue. And I don't want to sound old school and, and like Mama sounded when she was getting on to us about not holding that baby. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think this could really set up developmental issues. So we'll see. And I, I can totally I, – I could totally see myself in her situation because as, as a grandmother with a – a child like that, you know, and again, my kids are 21, 18, and 14. I am not at grandmother phase yet, thank God. <laughs> but I, that would bother me. That uh-huh. would bother me. So, I can, I'm, I can we'll have to educate ourselves about this this uh, self soothing movement. I don't well, know. I, I don't really know anything about it. I mean, but. You know, but some some programs, even kind of disciplinary programs, uh, Growing Kids God's Way, which is a big, um, one of the really big churches, a mega church here in Louisville, teaches that whole parenting class. And one of the things that they say is that you teach your child to have alone time or room time so that mom and dad can have time together and you can get things done. And I think, okay, with a typically developing kid who's already mastered communicating, who already understands I can play by myself for 15 minutes and I'm not going to die here. Mommy's always going to come right back. I can amuse myself. Great. I don't have a problem with that. But for a kid who doesn't really want to be with people anyway, (laughs) that's awful. Because then again, you're giving him another reason not to learn to be social. And so I think for the typically developing kid, those kinds of child-rearing practices are okay. But for our children with developmental delays, we need to be facilitating the best possible uh, environments for them to want to learn how to communicate. And so, you know, any parent who tells me that they're doing some kind of disciplinary special program, I say, you know, that really is written for normal kids, and unfortunately that's not what we're dealing with here. Your child has a delay, so that program is not going to be applicable, and here is why. And some parents feel relieved by that because they feel really, really guilty that – you know, their kid isn't able to do it, or they feel like, oh, this is not going to be, you know, my kid doesn't understand why he's getting 
time out or, you know, whatever the discipline method seems to be. You know, my kid's not there. He does not understand it. He just thinks I am being a mean old mommy. And then when somebody says, you don't have to do that with your kid, and this doesn't apply to you because he's got developmental differences, and receptive language-wise, he doesn't understand cause and effect. So he certainly doesn't understand why he's getting put in his room for, you know, how long by himself. You know, just toss that book out. We are not there yet. You know, some moms really feel relieved, like, phew, that didn't feel right to me in the first place. Right. So, but like, as, as you said, not yet. And odds are at some point yeah. that will be totally appropriate. But, yeah, sometimes they do fail to factor in that might say for a two-year-old, and the child may be two, but developmentally he's more like 12 months or he's more like 15 months. Right. So that's so really not two as far as development right. goes. And you have to use that. You have to look at where a child is developmentally and use what's appropriate for that. Anybody that might be listening that's struggling with that kind of disciplinary issue, um, Teach Me to Listen and Obey 2 is my receptive language, the second part of that um, DVD series. The first part, Teach Me to Listen and Obey 1, really talks about kind of how to teach children to understand language and is more appropriate for like that 18 months to two-year range and under, and then two and above is Teach Me to Listen and Obey 2, and there's a whole section on there about issues that come up. And Teach Me to Listen and Obey is a little bit uh, misleading in how the title is because it's not really about, um, you know, do it or else with, you know, (laughs) making a kid (laughs) follow directions. It's about being sensitive to where they are developmentally and using the right approaches and so if you need some more information about that that'd be a great dvd for you to look at that and all the dvds are on sale for a big three-year anniversary sale can you believe i've had that website up three years nope i know it seems like a year and a half ago or so or a blink ago it just doesn't seem like it's three years so we always run this 20 percent off right at holiday time so you can check out teachmetotalk.com and i didn't even mean to talk about the dvd here i'm just that just kind of came up with the whole disciplinary um, kind of question. And that's not even how this started out, that whole thing. But it's funny how we can start in one place and end up in another. <laughs> Imagine that, huh? Well, kind of All related. Right. Kind of related to the self Well, it's rel- it, Yeah, yeah, kind of later on as you march down that developmental path, what might happen. All right, let's move on and talk about this. This next question, okay, here's the bilingual issue again, and we have certainly talked about um, how some children have real difficulty with language when you are introducing more than one language, and again, there a lot of the research says that that should not affect, or it certainly doesn't cause language delays when you're raising children in bilingual homes. But we do know that children who are exposed to more than one language meet those expressive language milestones later than if they were just learning one language. And so really great speech pathologist, again, she's a little bit older than we are, probably a lot older, um, came and talked to me, and she was really cute. This is about her grandchild, too. She said she has a a 17-and-a-half-month-old granddaughter who's being raised in a bilingual home, and she said she understands everything in both languages and is just really smart and follows directions and is really cute and social and, you know, just a darling, darling little girl. She said, however, she does not imitate one sound. And she said she's pretty quiet overall, but when she does vocalize, it's not in the syllable 
normal sequences that we hear when people are when um, infants and toddlers, really toddlers, start to do a lot of their babbling, or I guess that would be like the nine to twelve month phase. She said she really is not even doing any of that. She's seventeen and a half months old, and when she does vocalize, it's kind of an odd. And how she described it was kind of like, you know, like a really distorted lateral S. And she said, so it's nothing like the typical early speech sounds. And she said, you know, she asked me, first of all, she didn't tell me about the atypical vocalization. She was just talking about the bilingual stuff. And I said, well, you know, and I gave her my spiel that I just said, that children are more likely to meet those expressive language milestones a little later. And then she came back and added that she's not able to imitate. And then she came back and added, well, even when she does vocalize, (laughs) it's really atypical. I couldn't even transcribe it or write it. I can't even come up with really what sound it is. And so she asked me if I would be worried about apraxia. And I said, yes, I would. And I said, I don't think, you know, she said that's so early. And I said, yeah, but the calendar doesn't really determine if she can, you know, imitate vocally or not. She said she's seen a little bit of oral motor groping when she's trying to imitate and that most of the time she just kind of walks away in frustration and doesn't try to imitate any mouth movements. And she asked me would I be concerned about apraxia and I said, yes, I would. And so she, the pediatrician had just told the mom, you know, the bilingual stuff. She didn't really, um, the mom didn't really put together that when she did vocalize that it was pretty um, pretty atypical or pretty different sounding from how we would normally expect those early vocal attempts. So it is funny when you get a kid that has what looks like it's one issue is the reason they're not talking when it may be another one, you know, when you really kind of peel back those layers and look at all those factors. And, again, it was interesting that it's <laughs> – a speech pathologist talking about her grandchild, not talking about someone on her caseload, and she just commented about how different it is when it's a child that you, you know, love and adore. And I guess that's like when our own children have issues. She said, but it's just magnified when it's a grandchild, and you're so worried, but you're still tiptoeing around some of these issues because you're the grandparent, not the parent, and you certainly don't want to alienate your child or your your uh child spouse and so she said it's really really hard to talk about those things with uh with her uh, i don't remember if it's her daughter i think it was her daughter and her son-in-law um and so again and the, yeah, unless they're in a think. related line of work they'll probably think she's just a hysterical grandmother and let's hope she is right. let's hope yeah okay and first child first grandchild yeah mm-hmm. I can't say I have personally seen a child um, from a bilingual situation that, let me think about that, no, who appeared to be apraxic. The kids I've seen who were in bilingual situations tended to have fairly significant receptive language delays as well as... um, And and she said she didn't, and that's what... She didn't. She said she understands beautifully in Mm -hmm. both languages. In both languages, right. Yeah, and she's bilingual too, the speech pathologist. Oh. And then her daughter's bilingual and the dad. And she said, so they all have spoken both languages. You know, if they've told her something in English, they've told her in whatever 
I don't even remember the second language. It might have been French, but I don't remember. But they've told her in both languages. So, again, she said her receptive language, she is ahead of the game receptively. So that's why the pediatrician thinks that it's just because she's bilingual that she's just having a harder time catching up. And without the grandmother telling me that she had seen oral groping or that she couldn't imitate any kind of sound or anything with her mouth and that when she does try to vocalize it as atypical, it does sound like it is kind of a bilingual issue until you mention those particular characteristics, <laughs> which might indicate something else. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I wouldn't expect a child 18 or 17 and a half months great receptive language skills in two languages to be so delayed they're not saying anything. You know, know what I mean? Okay, anything. that's more than yeah. a little delayed. Yeah, right. okay, instead of 50 words, she has 20. Okay, fine. I that's, know. You know, but know. no words? Mm. No words. She said no real word approximations, and that's why she's worried. You know, but of course the pediatrician is using the very bottom milestone of 10 to 15 words, which certainly we, that's on my test. That's on my test at 18 months that a child would say 10 to 15 words spontaneously. But we know from our training that the typical 18-month-old child really has about 50 words when language is moving along. And so when you compare 10 to 15 to zero and you think, eh, well, she's a little behind, but then when you take typical development, like you just said, at about 50 words at 18 months, that's a little scarier. And so the pediatrician wasn't really pointing that out to the mom. And, again, I think the grandmother's really treading on, you know, trying to walk on eggshells and not offend anybody and not, you know, not be picky grandma who's hyper focused on, you know, teasing out every little intricacy of her grandbaby's development. Oh, my gosh, I know that's going to be me. (laughs) But you know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. she's trying really hard. And, again, when she just presents it on the whole bilingual argument without noting those other things, I can see how she would buy that. But, you know, I'm with you. It's uh, especially when you add the speech sound you know, not mama, not dada, not mama's pretty much she mama. She said nothing about Kate. any language. I mean, she said, yeah, she said nothing. She said she has no true words, hmm. and that when she, and that she's not very noisy, and that when she is noisy, it's very atypical. Very but good. again, she didn't tell me that the first conversation. The first conversation, she just says it's bilingual, and this is what the pediatrician thinks, and what do I think? And then blah, she blah, blah, said, blah, okay, blah. now I'm going to tell you what I'm really worried about. <laughs> but then, okay, she said that to me, and we're talking, and this is right before lunch, and she said, oh, I'll let you go eat. So then we're at the buffet line, and she says, you know, she's really not imitating anything. You know, she mm-hmm. kind of approached me again. And I said, well, you know, that kind of makes it a little bit different. No, 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 no. We talked about it a little bit more. Then, after lunch, before the session started again, she said, you know, Laura, when she does vocalize, it's really weird. Let me tell you what sound it is. So she, in her heart of hearts, is really worried. (laughs) (laughs) But even as, you know, she didn't really, she kept adding information when she talked to me about it. Um, And so I guess, you know, we all kind of want to be pacified a little bit with, oh, don't worry. And then we think, oh, that's not what my gut's telling me here. So I think she ended up buying the, Apraxia DVDs. I was going to look at that. Oh, I was going to say, I think you got to teach me to talk with Apraxia, definitely. 
I think she did. I don't remember. She doesn't really work with babies. Didn't she say that about her? She doesn't ever get them until they're older than three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she's not totally comfortable. Yeah, and so to her, three-year-olds are babies. And to Mm -hmm. us, three-year-olds are big. They're big. (laughs) You know, I joke that kindergartners are like geriatrics to me. (laughs) They're old. (laughs) You know, so her Well, you know, I have tried to find information, research, you know, scholarly works related to bilingual situations and the effect that has on on language development. And the only thing I've ever been able to find says, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. And, um, you know, it's great. It's great if kids are in bilingual situations. And in my experience um, working with language-delayed kids, I can't say that my impression has been that it's wonderful. And I'm not saying for a typically developing child right. that it isn't wonderful. I and buy you wouldn't that. see those kids. You right. wouldn't see I'm those kids because they're right. not referred. Yeah. Right. And they don't need you. Yeah. I can see for if if that child, if she happened to be apraxic, that that probably wouldn't be a great thing um, because she's hearing two different words every time. She needs the same model over and over and over and again. Right. So not to say that it would be, you know, uh, horribly detrimental in the long run, but it certainly wouldn't be what I would recommend for a child if she were a praxic or I suspected she could be a praxic at that age. Like I said earlier, my cases have all been with kids who have have um, receptive language issues, and mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, there I've had a slew of kids where they were kind of those borderline kids, and this is not something I would have said to the parents probably, but just between you and me, Laura, they had some <laughs> they had some kind of spectrumy tendencies. I wouldn't have said right. Yeah, they appear to be But they're on the spectrum, right. Yeah. But they had some spectrumy tendencies. You know, they they mm-hmm. may have done some stereotypical play, they may have done some kind of stimmy stuff, they may have Certainly they have the receptive language issues that often goes hand in hand with kids on the spectrum. But Anyway, so, and, you know, to me it only makes sense that if they're having receptive language issues, it it can't really help that child to be hearing it in two different languages. If they're not getting it in one language, why would it be better in two languages, you know? Well, and one of the first strategies that we recommend for any child with a receptive language delay is that you simplify and you reduce the complexity. And so common sense would say, okay, cut out one of those languages and just focus on what's your primary language. And when parents say, well, how do I know which is my primary language, I recommend that they use what they'll need for school, for when they go to preschool. And you can continue to do some of your, you know, uh, doing it in one language and doing it in the other language. But if you're you're two and not saying anything and not understanding much of anything, it does make sense to really kind of go ahead and reduce that complexity by eliminating that extra system that you really – don't absolutely have to have. Um, but, again, we're not going to find a ton of research on that because everything you find really talks about how language learning occurs more naturally and more rapidly if it's introduced, you know, in that birth to three window. And we know that's a great, you know, period of brain development overall. And I understand that. But, again, for kids who are kind of predisposed to have those developmental challenges, I don't think that's a good idea. And we certainly aren't going to know who those babies are. You know, you're not going to know it until you have a problem. So, 
you know, when we see it and when we recommend it, it is all that they reduce to that one language. It is because there are problems there. And who, who's to say that, that, that they wouldn't have had a problem with language, uh, receptive language anyway? Even with just one language presented from right. birth, we don't necessarily I would say know that. I mean, probably would. Would it have been as significant? Right. Probably not, because they're muddying the waters. There's too much going right. on. They can't decipher out the meaning of one language, let alone two. But would they have had a problem? Yes, probably they would have had a problem. Probably they I will would say have that anyway. has been hard to tell parents, um, right. bilingual parents, when. And I like, I think your reasoning is sound. Let's go with what they're going to need in school. And since right. I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, that does still mean English. And so, yeah. but that's hard because right. oftentimes that means, okay, so I really want you to eliminate or greatly reduce the, the amount of language, um, your native language, you know. And, right. and parents, right. I always feel so bad saying that I because I get it. I mean, I know, you know, you speak whatever language it is. You want your child to speak that language. I've had parents tell me that they couldn't possibly not speak whatever language because their parents would find that unforgivable. I mean, I get it. Right. But it's like, well, um, you know, (laughs) if you want it to get better, and I always say once they catch up, once their language skills are coming in and they're pretty sound, great. Go with the bilingual thing. I, I I totally embrace their right and their decision to do that. It's just at this point it's not really working very well. So Because the kids don't have a system to really, they don't have the foundation there. And once right. they get the foundation, it makes it a lot easier. Right. When they conceptually understand ball is ball, then they can learn ball is whatever, you know, and whatever other language that is, but if they're having a really hard time making sense of what's going on around them, you have to simplify and reduce the complexity, and most of the time that means pick one primary language and stick with that. And I get a lot of emails from parents overseas that English might be the language they need to drop because they're in Japan or they're, you know, somewhere that English is not as prevalent as, you know, some of the European countries, you know, they're going to be speaking both. Everybody's bilingual. So, okay, I get that. That's great. But, you know, whatever language that they're going to need for preschool or school, that's definitely what I would go with. And we certainly have had parents um, from other countries, Kate, that they spoke beautiful English because they they were, you know, bilingual from birth. But those parents probably were not predisposed to language delays or learning challenges or learning difficulties, and so it wasn't a problem for them. But for the kids that we are seeing, it is a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you have to uh, address that. Have to. Um, and I you know, do, and I always say I don't mean to be culturally insensitive, and I don't. But it is right. kind of like really, this is just uh, upping the ante on this kid who's you know not keeping pace already. Yeah. So right, right, really, really but, struggling. I hate to say it. I have to say I hate telling parents that, but I make myself say it. I make myself do it, too, and I say, gosh, I don't want you to think that I'm being insensitive or being prejudicial or any other adjective that could, you know, that a parent might come up with with that, but it really, in a way, it's kind of like common sense. You know, we need to simplify. We need to make it easier for this kid to understand and get it, and, you know, I relate everything back to, like, talking, and I say, if you ever wanted to talk, we've got to make 
this simple so that he can learn, you know, ball is ball, milk is milk, shoe is shoe. He's got to have one way to say it so that it makes better sense to him. And and parents get it, and I've never really had anybody argue with me per se, um, or not to my face anyway, <laughs> after that. You know, and usually things move right along. Haven't you had great success where parents have kind of reduced the complexity and used one language? They usually Normally, they may not be totally yes, age-appropriate, but they make good usually progress. usually catch up pretty rapidly, yeah. or at least yeah. you, you see a big, huge improvement over what you a were getting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of progress. All right, you know I could continue to talk about this for, oh, another hour or two, <laughs> but I need to scoot out the door since Mom Diddy's are calling and Macy's about to be in the Christmas program at church, so I am going to say that we are finished with this week's show. Okay. Uh, that you'll join You'll join us back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and hopefully next week we'll be back at the correct time, and people won't be surprised if they're tuning in for a live show and are getting it delayed or taped or whatever else. But, again, anyway, next week, and I hope we have some callers next week. If you were listening and you were thinking about calling, let me give you the call-in number right now so that you can write it down and be ready to call Next Sunday night, it's one seven one eight seven six six four three three two. We would love to hear from you, and if you want to give us a heads up so that Kate and I can kind of plan an answer to your question, you can leave that on my website at teachmetotalk.com. Any parting words, Kate? I uh, hope Macy has a great show. And Thank I you very much. It. And you have a nice you have a nice family dinner. I hope Laura makes it home. Your Laura. She made it makes to sixty five, so we're we're on the home. Okay. Set. All right, that sounds good. Okay, talk to you tomorrow. Bye.